0: Four, three, two,
1: one. Lift off of the Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and welcome to the Space Economy Podcast. This week we have a Future in Space Operations QA from September 14th on the U.S. ISAM National Strategy, which was released by the White House in April of this year. ISAM being the acronym for In-Space Servicing, Assembly, and Manufacturing. The guest speaker is Izin Uzo Okoro from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Uzo Okoro spoke about the ISAM National Strategy for about 24 minutes before spending another half hour answering questions. Listen in.
2: Thank you, Harley, and good afternoon, and evening, uh, and morning to all. It is um, a pleasure to be here with you all. And um, as Harley mentioned, my name is Esenay. Esenay rhymes with resume, if it helps. Uh, And I'm the Assistant Director for Space Policy here at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Uh, Just a brief overview of my office. Uh, OSTP, as we like to call it, provides the president and others within the executive office of the president with advice on scientific engineering and technology issues. We lead, in our agency, science and technology policy coordination efforts, and I will be discussing one on ISAM today on in-space Servicing Assembly and Manufacturing. We serve as a source of scientific and technological analysis and judgment for the president with respect to major policies, plans, and programs of the federal government. Our overarching mission is to maximize the benefits of science and technology to advance health, prosperity, security, environmental quality, and justice for all Americans. All of our portfolios vary, and mine is typically focused on civil and commercial space, so topics like space weather, microgravity research, uh, you know, what we're doing in, you know, post ISS, or earth observations, orbital debris, aeronautics, planetary protection, human exploration, space science, as you call it the JWST uh, telescope unveiling by the president. Those kinds of things fall under my portfolio. Today, I will focus my remarks on in-space servicing assembly and manufacturing. To start with a bit of a history of how we got um, to where we were at the start of this administration and then go into what we've accomplished and where we're going. So first, in May of 2018, OSCP hosted a round table between government, industry, and academia to discuss the challenges and opportunities of on-orbit servicing, assembly, and manufacturing. And at the time, there was not an overwhelming consensus to develop a national strategy. So there was consensus to conduct more interagency coordination and technology transfer. So OSDP's report then in 2018 um, focused on providing a series of recommendations to address a spectrum of challenges in OSAM. But since then, worldwide interest in OSAM capabilities has grown. And in November of 2020, NASA launched an OSAM initiative, um, which is called the National Initiative in some circles. It was uh, put together to coordinate federal stakeholders with similar equities in in on-orbit servicing, assembly, manufacturing, and they began coordinating some of these discussions on capabilities, technologies, and definitions. The Defense Department has also been pursuing a number of, um, of technology development uh, projects in this area. OSCP conducted two additional studies related to OSAM, one on global trends in technology and capabilities, and another on global trends in developing norms of behavior related to OSAM and uh, rendezvous and proximity operations, so RPO. So that's what I walked into um, early last year when I started this role. And for full disclosure, I have a doctorate in um, on-orbit assembly of small satellites. So this is a topic that is um, not just of professional interest, but of um, very personal uh, interest to me. Um, So, you know, walking in and looking through all of that material, and developing, you know, space priorities for my tenure in this role, I, I knew that I wanted to do something on this topic. And, you know, I, I went back to even Hubble and the International Space Station that were partly assembled in space by humans. And um, I looked at the era, and given that um, this is something I had studied relatively recently, um it was very clear to me that the era of on uh, servicing and assembly is new and growing. And since the United States is very interested in having leadership in science and technology and continuing to pioneer, I said, why not elevate OSAM? And so in October of 2021, I ended up forming an interagency working group A first in coordination with the the National Space Council and the national strategy for in-space servicing assembly and manufacturing is the product. Uh, A quick story on the shift from OSAM to ISAM. It was very clear throughout the uh, seven-month process that a lot of the interagency, a lot of commercial companies were already developing technologies for um, the in-space environment. They were already developing technologies for different um, orbit regimes. And there were just so many commonalities that existed between the needs of on-orbit activities and surface-based activities. And you know, undertaking these activities in different locations will, of course, require different um, tailored norms rules policies and technologies however the underlying capabilities and technologies were the same so I uh, took a very quick poll at the end of March a week or so before the report was the strategy was to be released and didn't get any objections from um, a few a few uh, individuals in the the Commercial side, from the academic side, and actually from from the um, interagency working group, and we, after ensuring that nothing that was done would interfere with this new expanded definition, because I also didn't want the White House to look like a place that was defining fields and defining niche, you know, sectors. But it seems that it was something, even in talking to CONFER, you know, one of the organizations that uh, very heavily involved in this work that Harley referenced. This was something they thought of years ago, and it seemed like a great opportunity for us to uh, move forward and from on orbit to in-space uh, servicing assembly manufacturing and the suite of capabilities that will allow us to, um, Continue maturing and adopting capabilities for, for us to uh, conduct these activities in space. So, the document, uh, which hopefully you have a copy of, directly supports the United States Space Priorities Framework, and it is focused on SNT, science and technological innovation. It's focused on commercial development is focused on economic growth. Research has shown that, you know, future modular reconfigurable space systems and their architectures will enjoy a higher uh, level of longevity and return on investment through adaptive mission options, through extended operational lifetimes, and um, access to of these ISAM capabilities. Similarly, um, we know that orbital persistent platforms can provide the in-space infrastructure necessary to prove out multiple ISAM um, capabilities and technologies that can uh, help close business cases for commercial providers. Um, so in elevating, as I mentioned before, elevating the you know, adoption and maturation of um, in space infrastructure, of technology, of uh, architectures, of platforms, um, and this includes even ground-based infrastructure, are really key to U.S. sustained leadership in technological advancements in space. I mean, quickly touch on the six strategic goals that are presented in the document, in the national strategy, which was released in April of 2022. Um, Again, this builds on existing investments and emerging capabilities, and it helps us really chart a course for using a national approach to realize the opportunities enabled by ISAM. The six goals are, one, advancing research and development, second, in ISAM. Second is prioritizing the expansion of scalable infrastructure. The third is accelerating the emerging ISAM commercial industry. Um, and, and the third, I will say, is uh, very important to me and really helps shape a lot of the documents because one of my goals in this role is to help make space um, even more open for business. We've been talking about um, this uh, trillion-dollar space economy for you know, much longer than even my lifetime, and um, I just wanted to help us that. Uh, move the needle even more in accelerating uh, the commercial uh, industry's progress and seeing how the government can help uh, promote the work of the commercial sector. The fourth goal is uh, promoting international collaboration and cooperation to achieve ICM goals. The fifth is um, prioritizing environmental sustainability as we move forward with ICM capabilities. And this includes things like active debris removal capabilities and technologies, which um, Would support our work in space sustainability and orbital debris uh, remediation, but is, you know, part of the suite of capabilities under ISAM. And then the sixth is inspiring a diverse and uh, future future uh, workforce that is trained and ready um, to to tackle all um, all the ISAM, um Innovations and technologies we would need then um, in the future. The, the strategy cuts across uh, multiple outcomes. When you think of remote sensing capabilities on orbit, you think of human exploration and lunar capabilities on the surface of the moon and the future exploration of Mars. Uh, those are examples of capabilities, of course, of outcomes. Of course, there are capabilities like on orbit uh, refueling, maneuvering. Docking, upgrading, repositioning, orbit, transport and transfer, and even, shall I say, you know, timely debris collection um, and removal or recycling um, that we would benefit from when this becomes, when we, when we are really living the outcomes of uh, this strategy. The strategy also helps to create um, create jobs in robotics and software, cloud networks, ground-based communications, additive manufacturing, graph component development, um, and a plethora of uh, other sectors that some of your companies uh, work on today. It helps empower um, companies like yours and other U.S. entities with Varying interest to really develop multi-purpose technologies to enable, again, this new space economy—not um, just in space, but also on Earth—and um, the strategy helps us solve challenges that um, we are still looking to solve. Um, when you think of a refueling service that allows um, spacecraft to provide. to to continue to provide uh, scientific uh, data for climate research and um, helps us explore the universe longer than was once possible. When you think of redundancy that is removed in our civil space programs and the encouragement of increased use of commercial capabilities, um, as is uh, hopefully to you all boldly spelled out in the document. we only see it as helping to move, move the sector forward, move the needle on um, technological innovation of these capabilities. We see sustained leadership in space as critical um, as of the adoption of these new capabilities. And the strategy addresses, or should, um, address three challenges that uh, strongly believe need to be overcome in order to realize these benefits of ISAM um, capabilities that I've mentioned. The first is improving coordination and collaboration both within the U.S. government and as well as um, amongst the United States government, the, the, um, our international partners, academia and industry. The second is, you know, sending this clear and consistent demand signal to the private sector in order to stimulate, stimulate investment, mitigate risk, and address that investor confidence. And lastly, the third is, you know, how we establish and adopt ISAM standards to help promote growth. We know that we need um, a coordinated and robust roadmap for how to integrate current and future commercial ICM capabilities to address upcoming needs in three to five years. And I say three to five, um, I would say three to seven years, not three to five years. And I say three to seven years because in keeping with the goal of um, a sustained based economy in about seven years, I think that we can look to a future where the government um continues to send the demand signal, continues to be the primary customer. Um, and then right about seven years from now or year eight, we have um, a scenario where the government is perhaps 40%, um, 30 to 40% of the customer. And there is this robust um, ecosystem where the rest uh, 60 to 70% of um, the business model there for most companies is a B2B relationship um, or, or a, um, a relationship where the, the commercial company is providing a service to to other governments and, um, or specific agencies. So when you think of refueling NOAA's suite of um, satellites, for instance, um, providing that service or refueling... Japanese satellites as well, you know, how do we create a future where U.S. commercial entities can provide these services and capabilities that um, are clearly being developed now with or without a request from the U.S. government for not just U.S. uh, government customers, but also um, for international customers. And this, this, would also I guess I can say that this would also include um, our customers on on the um, on the defense side and on the uh, within the intelligence community who are very keen and very interested in our watching um, and following the development of um, these capabilities now there are uh, numerous services, Um, servicing capabilities and technologies like commoditized autonomy, to name a few. And one of the questions that we're looking to ask, looking to answer now um, that the strategy has been released is, well, which which of these capabilities should be implemented within the next five years and who are the customers? And um, of servicing capabilities of assembly technologies and of manufacturing capabilities, which of these are most relevant to meet not just NASA's priorities, um, but NRO's priorities or the Space Force's priorities within the next upcoming budget cycle. Um, When considering ways to create a demand signal, what model should the U.S. government apply to its procurement of uh, commercial ISAM services? So these are the kinds of questions that um, I'm seeking to answer as we develop our, our next product, which is an in-space servicing assembly manufacturing implementation plan. So the same uh, group of um, interagency experts who helped with the national strategy have now come together again to develop an implementation plan to answer those questions. And those implementation plans, um, the implementation plan will include actions that um, agencies within the U.S. government support. If you're following my work and I've um, seen our national orbital debris implementation plan as an example of um, what this ICM implementation plan would look like. It will list the lead agency and the support agency for a specific action. The Orbital Debris Implementation Plan has 44 actions. I'm not um, looking to create 44 actions for in-space servicing assembly and manufacturing. I intend to have less and um, have them be um, really big, uh, heavy hitters. uh, agencies can go off and implement that will solve the challenges I've mentioned and would help um, advance the goals that um, are the strategy, the six strategies that were included in the document. And um, one thing I will say about uh, our work is even without putting together an implementation plan, uh, this national strategy already has um Put things in motion at uh, different agencies who are looking to act based on the vision provided in the strategy. One example is the FCC, and um, even though they're not really called an agency, they're not an agency, they're an independent body. They were a member and they are active and have been looking at ways to um, update rulings that will and full of capabilities and technologies because I mean there are we could unpack this in the QA but there are lots of questions uh, lots of regulatory questions uh, to answer and you know speaking of regulatory I should mention that um, another effort that's happening uh, within the building actually i share well with our dr Diane howard uh, who's the director of the um, of the of, uh, commercial space for the National Space Council is working on mission authorization. She's updating Article 6. And, you know, in-space capabilities are um, one of the novel activities that she's looking to update for, you know, orbital debris activities and active debris removal or recycling or repurposing technologies are one of the um, – another one of the novel activities she's looking to update regulation for. So I'm really excited about the work we're doing. I'm focused on pure s and um, here at OSCP. Uh, my colleague at Space Council is uh, working on the regulatory piece We've got STC also and other agencies coming up with their um, actions that will um, flow into our implementation plan that will hopefully, you know, implementation plans uh, take a lot of negotiation, a lot more than a national strategy, because the strategy is a presidential vision, and usually most people can come around with that, but implementation actions require, you know, a budget, uh, a line item, and so I not only have to negotiate with the agencies, I have to negotiate with OMB, so I will be doing the same thing and cannot, um, you know, overall debris took me 11 months, that's, a, a bigger topic and um, it has a lot more sensitivities than this one. So, with hope, this uh, effort does not take 11 months. Um, but uh, we have support from OMB, uh, which is critical to uh, getting whatever we put down on paper funded. And we will continue to look for ways uh, that we should work to advance a servicing culture. Across the entire um, space enterprise by supporting the effective standardization and adoption of interfaces for servicing um, as widely and as practical as we can across all uh, different space uh, systems and architectures. And you know the public and this administration um, prioritize both prioritize space sustainability and is focused on how we will use. ISAM capabilities to mitigate long-lived debris and work towards uh, fostering numerous other servicing capabilities and technologies. And I'm really uh, looking forward to what we end up with in our implementation plan that will focus on these actionable steps for approaches for um, these topics. I will stop here now knowing that it's a, or half some, Half the hour so that I can take your questions I think a discussion is uh, more fun than
3: yep. you hearing.
4: <laughs> me. It's <laughs> a good group to discuss with so thank you very good um, I've got and this is Harley you know moderators prerogative uh, a couple of questions and and I don't think you touched on it uh, you emphasized of course the, the collaboration between um, the government and commerce and industry, sorry, commerce industry and academia and so on. Is there a professional society or one or more professional societies um, that you have found to be most useful um, or most focused on the kind of um, activities that you are interested in? Which professional societies um, have taken this you know, space servicing and so on, some of that's so all under their wing. Does that make any sense?
2: Good question, Riley. So the first uh, that comes to mind is Converse. Converse is, um, you know, something that's funded out of DARPA and uh, run by Brian Whedon, Dr. Whedon, and it's, you know, was a global organization, and they have been very interested in this work. I think, you know, you know this tended to catch people off guard in about March when I was having um, a second conversations with some of these groups because I had actually informed confers was doing this back in October. But I was, you know, six months new into the role. No one really knew um, uh, that I was moving in this direction and. Um, But they were very pleased with it. Another organization um, is Smart Space Smart, I believe. They're called, and it's run by um, Rudra. I forget Rudra's last name, but he's a JPL employee, but runs this voluntary uh, think tank that is focused on manufacturing, robotics, transportation, uh, servicing, and uh, capabilities that support all of these uh, topics. Another organization I would say is, I would say that, you know, I held, I not only had an RFC because one thing about this role is I have to be fair to everyone and I need to be sure that I have a catch-all for the sentiment of the entire community. So I had a request for comments through the Federal Register, which is where everyone can send comments in. And I usually leave those open for two months to give people time during the summer. I left it open for two months and I received a lot of uh, comments from them, from the industry at large. And I think most of the commercial companies send uh, really, really helpful, detailed uh, feedback uh, through that mechanism. Um, I pulled together a, a number of uh, academics who throughout the U.S. looked to be the leading uh, PIs on, on this topic. And I also got to learn of their challenges and needs and gaps that they saw and uh, opportunities that they saw as well. So I not only, to answer your question, you know, CONFERS is one that comes to mind. Um, I talked to a number of the trade organizations, which um, are usually able to have deep reach within uh, the groups. But I would say the CONFERS is the most um, most enthusiastic and the one that most uh, specifically uh, and uh, benefits from uh, benefits and aligns uh, our work benefits. Feminine aligns with what they are doing naturally.
4: Okay, good. Thank you. Incidentally, um, Rudra's last name is Mukherjee. Um, usual spelling. He's a great guy. I agree with you. He's uh, he's out of JPL. Uh, I believe it was now about a year and a half ago. It might even have been two years ago that Rudra and company gave a presentation to this, uh, to this group. And they've gone much further along in this direction, probably working with some of your colleagues that you were mentioning. Um, but it uh, might be time to bring him back again in the not distant future. In any case, um, folks can look online and in our archives um, for some of the folks who have been working with Rudra in the past. I think it's a very good group and I think they've been very successful. Um, quick question, then open up to, to quick additional question, then open up to the um to the rest of the participants. Um, internationally, I would have expected, I don't have any experience in this area, that uh, there's a, a fine balance, a delicate balance to walk between collaborating with um, uh, um, uh, international partners, which of course, is important to do. There's more you know intelligence outside the US than there is inside the us. At the same time, we want to protect our technical secrets, the most delicate technical secrets. So, is that an issue that you all have, have faced? Where do you strike? You, know, you want to go be, be as collaborative as possible, but um, draw a line somewhere. Is that an issue that your office has dealt with?
2: No, not directly, because, you know, Harley, there are rules around, um, oh, yeah. you know, I think. Yeah and these things. So um, it's, it's not the way I look at it. I, I'm looking at it from – I've got a bird's-eye view of how we promote international collaboration and cooperation, and I'll give you some examples. I'm really thinking about it in terms of how to encourage um, international partnerships for U.S. companies that are building these infrastructure and technologies together. What do I mean by that? And space manufacturing also covers, you know, commercial space stations. You, as a U.S. entity, build a commercial space station. What rules and what policies do we need in place for you to have, um, a German instrument on your space station? You know, um, what, if you are, if you've got a robotic arm in, in low Earth orbit, um, Geo, what kind of new um, dock Um you visibly acquire a dock onto um, another satellite in order to review it or even maneuver it or tug? You know, who owns satellite at that point? You know, when both – and let's say the, the satellite that's receiving the service is, you know, a battalion or – you know, take an out a country that's not particularly assembly to the US, who protects the US commercial company? Um, and even if it's not a US uh, you know robot, let's say it's a German robot, can they dock on a US entity? So I think that when you look at rules that we and guidelines that we have we have all Right now, these novel activities, what we're calling novel activities, is important because we have to explore norms and standards and rules of the road and develop regulations. We can't do that without um, support from our international partners. We we know that um, supporting international institutions um, would also help us with responsible economic uh, development of the space domain. We know that um, there will be mutual benefits, excuse me, to the United States and also to international collaborators. When you think of um, international agreements, such as test facilities and leveraging academia to bring talent and research together, you know, we need to collaborate internationally for those things to happen. How do we update ITAR and EAR regulations to better accommodate ICM companies and enable better competition? How do we reduce or eliminate potential dual regulations? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one more on spectrum, this is a topic I don't like to get into just because um, one can spend their entire time in this building at the White House working on spectrum, but I'll give you a spectrum example. If international spectrum regulation mod- modifications are required for ISAM, how do we work with the ITU and you know that World Radio Communication Conference processes to identify adequate spectrum for ISAM activities in balance with other current and future spectrum requirements? So you know I can go on and on on you know policies for cameras even RPO to support long-term sustained ISAM. Um, operations and services, but I will just stop there. I think that at the level, I'm just looking a bit higher than um, security implications because I know that uh, the agencies can handle that with the um, guidance guidance that right. they currently
4: have. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, uh, before we go on to other questions from, or questions from other people, the um, the FISA presentation that Rudra um, gave to this group uh, can be found on the archives, the FISA archives, which you all should have links to from um, March 3rd of last year. So again, thank you um, for, thank you for referencing it. Okay, do other folks have questions?
5: Great yeah, this is Dan um, and I, 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 as I think you you told us about the importance of coordinating with stakeholders. And, and that strikes me as profoundly important to make sure that everybody is sort of pointed in the same direction. Now, you've got, if I'm looking at your, your documentation, you've got four departments. You know, you've got commerce, defense, state, transportation. you got agencies up the kazoo. Um, but my question is, who's going to do it? Um, who's, whose fault is it if it doesn't get done? This this coordination is, is is so essential. Can you can you speak to that?
2: Yes, of course. Whose fault is it? It will be my fault if it doesn't get done. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> who's going to do it? That's an easy one. Who's going to do it? Again, that's what we're working on right now. And I described my process for building an implementation plan, the implementation plan. And I recommend you look up the National Orbital Debris Implementation Plan, because there I list again a lead agency and support agencies. And that's the guideline for the agencies to um, take action on the, um, take steps to complete an action that they have signed on to uh, with uh, those supporting partners. So we will ideally develop um, actions under each of these six strategies, uh, strategic goals, and um, and then, for each of the actions, they will have a lead agency and some support agencies and that's really them going off on their own to work on work on those actionable steps. I will call them back about once a quarter to uh, check on progress, but the White House really does not uh try to interfere with agency work. We give them a vision, we give them guidelines, and this is what for concurrence, you know at the beginning, and this is why. Now, the sausage making really involves them at the agencies thinking in three ways. Uh, this is my uh, the guidance I provided. The first is, what does your agency um, want to um, implement now uh, that falls under you know these six strategies? So, what are the easy wins you were already thinking about? The second category would be, what are uh, Technologies and capabilities or actions you can take that um, this national strategy can – that will support this national strategy and will also support uh, the priorities of your agencies, but requires, you know, a, a budget line item. So it's just been on someone's wish list a few levels down, but now we can pull it up higher because of this document from the White House. Then the third category is, well, what are the aspirational things that you would never propose to the agency's leadership because um, it costs too much money, Um, you know? So those are all on the table, and then we have this discussion with their leadership. Uh, We make sure that there's no redundancy, that, you know, uh, Space Force isn't trying to do something that NASA is already doing and vice versa. and again, with the example of the FTC, everyone takes, thinks of what they can do, and they go off and start doing it. We're in the thick of uh, developing who's going to do what, so please stay tuned.
5: Okay, that 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 makes sense. I guess I guess partly what I'm saying is that at some level, somebody has to set rules, and and maybe this is a matter of legislation. I, I don't know, but um, and I I'm not sure who is who is able to do that. Well.
2: Uh, I mentioned um, that my colleagues at Space Council are working on right now an update to Article Six, an update to um, you know, just mission authorization on rules and regulations. The FCC is doing their bit, and Space Council is uh, doing their bit on regulation. So we should see, with all these efforts going on with an independent FCC, but so the National Space Council is focused on regulation with. Um, An OSDP that's focusing on, um, you know, science and technology actions that these agencies can implement and steps they can take. I think that this multi-pronged approach, we will be able to do it such that um, you don't have to ask your second question, which is whose fault is it, because we will all be working on it.
5: Yeah. Okay. Thank thank you very much. Okay. Uh, Excuse me. Other
6: questions, folks? Hi, this is Steve Brody. Can you hear me? Yep, yeah. sound good. Okay, great. First, uh, a comment. Let me just say I'm thrilled to hear that someone of your personal interests and background is in uh, our White House Office of OSTP. It's just great to see people with true credentials in the field uh, working in these areas. So thank you for being a part of that movement. And. Um, one other comment is that, um, you know, since I left NASA and joined academia, I found that uh, there's a wealth of reports going back decades uh, at the International Space University, and they're all PDF files and ISU libraries on just about any subject you can imagine in space. So if you're not already tapped into that, there are still some gems in some of these reports that may be we're not ready for prime time a decade ago or five years ago, but you know, on orbital debris, on what parts of ISS might be useful for a evolved station and you name it. There's stuff there. So my question is directly, um the whole the whole area of orbital debris as potential of uh, valuable quote unquote real estate. And I'm wondering to what extent uh, that's been addressed in this uh, report
5: or whatever
6: position paper I think you discussed either for salvage value of existing items that are up there or might be up there in the near future, or as feedstock for 3D printing, adaptive manufacturing, or any other creative ways of viewing it, not just as trash we need to get rid of.
2: So, um, thanks for the question. Now one, I would welcome you know these reports and the uh, studies happy to read it. and you know sometimes people are ahead of their time really, and if it's uh, valuable now, I'm happy to help steer the work and elevate the work. Um, on the specific question, now, we're really getting into orbital debris and um, somewhat stepping out of ISAM. For orbital debris, and this falls under remediation, one thing that is difficult because the community seems to want, you know, an active debris removal mission uh, by NASA. and it's probably an open secret that I think those who have been around long enough have um, noticed as well. And this is that and I'm taking my words carefully because this is a very sensitive subject, you know, we're happy to find missions to ensure that we continue to, you know, um, be at the forefront of, you know, science and technology innovation. But when there just is this strain now when a mission is proposed and it's proposed at $700 million and then a year later it becomes a billion dollars because they needed $300 million more and then a year later or a few years later it's $200 million more added to it. And you've got, you know, a $1.2 million mission. And so... I think we're looking for ways to do things better. And with debris removal, um, the numbers are not coming in. Um, So I I think that what we are doing now and what we did with the Orbital Debris Implementation Plan was to ask a number of agencies, a lot of these actions are given to NASA to conduct assessments um, and studies on on what these things could really cost, and, and um, work with the commercial sector on how we could do this, um, whether it's repurposing or recycling, um, or just removal, and. In an affordable manner and if there are you know we get briefed by a number of companies uh, very often and if there are these you know technologies that are being developed by companies you know without a demand signal from the government I mean I hope it's clear that the government would be willing to um, use these services because Space sustainability is a priority and um, orbital debris, while a global problem is one where the U.S. wants to lead. So I'm answering your question a question around roundabout way. Yes, we are looking into that, but we, we are still in search of solutions um, at the right price to move forward, at least within the government. And that's why we're looking to the commercial sector for, you know, innovations and techniques that can help us move forward. Thank you. Over.
4: Okay. Very good. Uh, All right. Um, Other, we got seven minutes left, several minutes, I'm sorry, left in the time available. Other questions, folks? Okay. If no other questions, we can knock off a little bit early.
3: Yes, I do have a question. This is uh, Edgar. I'm NASA uh, retired, and uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to to share with us, David. When we saw this um, this policy come out, uh, in space servicing, assembly, of manufacturing, we we were uh, heartened to see it among the the people that I work with. And um, but we were wondering who who actually had this in their in their portfolio, who had uh, responsibilities here. I, I guess to, to go to my question, um, I guess I'd start with both. I have both something on the small side and the large side. On the small side, manufacturing um, is medical foreseen as being in this pharmaceuticals, manufacturing of um, of uh, substances or materials or monoclonal antibodies or, or crystals uh, in space.
2: We are open to all technologies. I mean the goal is to elevate the this niche sector to empower you know, academics and industry to innovate so we are technology agnostic. <laughs>
3: Okay. Okay. Well, because uh, the first time I, you know, to to read it, I was it, I sort of it it seemed to lean toward the hardware side, not so much um, the materials necessarily, or or, necess- or medical uh, the medicines, right? Um, so then I'll, then I'll switch gears with a second question. I'm glad to hear that, that medical is in there, but I'll switch gears to a second question on the large side for servicing, and again to look at the document. I think of servicing satellites or servicing something that exists operationally already so you can add more years to its life, right? But on the large side, do you foresee that this servicing also includes servicing large stages or servicing large um, systems of systems um, that could then uh, having more propellant uh, leave Earth orbit uh, with a full tank?
2: Absolutely, all of the above. Space propulsion systems will be critical to ISAM, and we need to do research to explore different options, like fusion-type energy systems even but uh, it's really inclusive of all capabilities and technologies. I take your point that, um, uh, shall I say, soft manufacturing was not listed under the definition. It was actually took a bit of effort to de- determine if these were capabilities or technologies, and then we realize that the technologies um, help, you can use different technologies to arrive at a capability, but we do need both. We need, you know, materials to help us with applications for, you know, that include pressure-fed systems and feedstock and um, while that's hardware, uh, robotic, advanced robotics capabilities and reliabilities, um, in areas like you know relative motion sensing actionable robot interaction supervised robot autonomy object, uh, object grabbing grappling like that could help with some of these um, simulations and soft servicing activities and capabilities that um you are describing we are entirely open to all of the the, the goal. Really is to again encourage sustained U.S. leadership in the yes, maturation, technology, and capabilities.
3: Okay, great. I'm I'm glad to hear there's a very expansive view of those two items on the on the small end and the large end. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Thanks, Heather. All right, folks. A yeah. uh, few minutes left before the time we usually,
0: uh, we usually end.
4: Any other questions?
0: Uh, yeah, this is uh, Warren Rumley. I work at Johnson Space Center in the Commercial LEO Development Program. Uh, a, a question on the orbital debris removal aspect. Um, you mentioned that you'd be uh, interested in getting you know, commercial industry to help us do some of this stuff. Have you looked into or I assume you are, but uh, considered the perhaps the liability and legal aspects of it, especially as it pertains to if we were to go contract somebody to do a job um, you know if, if they bring it in if they deorbit the device uh, some uh, satellite and it ends up damaging harming someone on the ground uh, Have you thought about how to tackle the kind of the liability aspect of it? in other words, are we going to require them to carry a bunch of insurance, or would we say that, you know, in this particular case, they don't have to get it? And then a kind of a related note is the jurisdiction aspect of, you know, would would the government be involved in uh, saying that this third party could go deorbit perhaps somebody else's defunct uh, debris, uh, uh, you know, potentially that's also uh, uncooperative. Um, no longer in control so have you thought about some of that stuff
2: yes of course again um, I love that we are pushing gears to orbital debris so the national orbital debris implementation plan covers um, answers all your questions and it really assigns a task to you to you and your colleagues at NASA uh, NASA is looking at um, not the jurisdiction bit—that's covered in the activities of the uh, Space Council um, and the legal um, aspect as well. But as far as determining how and the approach, and, um, and then SAA is also looking at the safety. And this is what I mean by this: really is an interagency effort. So NASA is looking at assessments of and of what. Um, what is feasible and that's why you know at the executive office of the president we we strive to give very high level visions and then the agencies uh, do the work of determining what is safe what is technically feasible and um even what is um what the rules are so even with the work i keep referring to the Space council is doing on the uh, on the rules and the reg- uh, regulatory piece, they will they will be you know looking to um, the FAA and others and even the FCC on um, implementing implementing these rules after they've determined that they are safe.
0: Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean I, I guess where I was kind of going with the question is is that You know, while we intend to accomplish a certain thing, there could be barriers to a commercial company wanting to get involved in that. But those are potentially barriers that we can help reduce on the government side such that it then becomes tractable for them to become involved, um, you know, in something like insurance or, 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 uh, you know, Offsetting the risk somehow that they would have to incur is maybe part of that. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll look through the ODEP uh, again. Thank you. Yes,
2: yeah, so I'm agreeing with you actually, and I'm, I'm emphasizing that this is something. It's at the granular level of the agency um, to determine the best way to help uh, commercial the commercial sector. To make this a reality and if we do come up to if we do this due diligence and there are no solutions or no optimal solutions then we will revisit what can be done. but yes we've looked into all of those and uh, right now I think mean NASA has uh, NASA FAA and Space Council are working on different bits of that.
1: okay great thank you well that's a wrap on this episode. As always, your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Economy Space. And you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time.